0: What up, everybody? You are listening to the Ferment Podcast. My name is Adam Russell. I am your host. And today's guest with me is Paul Anleitner. He is the host of the Deep Talks podcast, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Adam. Thanks. I love talking with you, man. Well, I love having you on. And if you are not familiar with Paul, if you have not listened to Deep Talks, I just want to say shout out to your podcast. And (laughs) if you're a fermenter, you might be a deep talker as well, so check it out. <laughs> there's some overlap there. Yeah, the Venn, the Venn diagrams Venn diagram. of our podcasts, they kind of they yeah. kind of overlap a little bit. Yeah.
1: You know, we have maybe some distinct focuses, but I think we're aimed in the, the same direction. So. And uh, there's things going on in the Ferment podcast that you guys are exploring that I wouldn't normally, you know, especially when it comes to the life of... worship and liturgy in our churches that I, I don't necessarily give as much attention to, so I need to go over there as someone on staff, as a pastor in a church. There's so many encouraging, really good conversations
0: you're hosting over there, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And this is actually your second time on the podcast, so if someone's listening right now and you're like, wow, who is this guy? You can actually go back about a year and a half and catch an episode we did together where you really tell your story, which yeah, was really wonderful, Th- and we got to talk a little bit about just charismatic practice, and maybe some of the things that we've learned along the way that were great, but then some of the things we were missing and needing. So
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: that was a good talk. It was. It was helpful for me. I don't. I don't think I'd really sh- fleshed
1: out publicly in a way like that. The entirety of my story. And it was good for me to see some of the ways, when you put all of it together, you're able to see some of the ways that God was working when you put it into a narrative, right, to share with somebody else. That's one of the benefits of, in our church communities, of asking and inviting people to share their testimony. Obviously, you know, when there's a great story to share, it's good for the people to hear, but the practice of telling it yourself might be just as valuable. That's so right. I was really thankful that was an encouraging conversation together, and I know a lot of people found it meaningful too.
0: Well, it occurs to me that even as we're just beginning here and maybe talking a little about telling stories, it occurs to me that that is directly connected to even some of the things that you do dig into your podcast a lot about, which is meaning-making, how we discern what is happening in the world or what it means, and human beings are just profoundly storytelling creatures, which is... We highlight certain things, we subtract certain things in an effort to take something that's really bigger than our ability to take it all in and package it in a way that it does mean something, right? Yeah, that's it exactly. The way that
1: narrative, you know, as far as we know, we're the only creatures on this planet that really tell stories. And we are storied creatures, especially here in America. We have a deep value for stories. I've noticed looking around, uh, we've been kind of looking at houses and stuff, and there's a real loss of craftsmanship in a lot of modern homes. And you look back in times past, you know, especially we're here in South Minneapolis, our church is here in South Minneapolis, and there's some, by American standards, some really old homes. And the quality of craftsmanship is amazing. And I've often thought like, well, why does it seem like, you know, you kind of get these just boxy houses, or even when new public buildings are built, there's this style called brutalism, and they just look atrocious but then i was watching uh some behind the scenes on the mandalorian right so they you know they, they do uh, they do that on disney plus too and i'm seeing all these brilliant artists and these people that are making these sets and these costumes and i just i think one thing you know i'm, I'm not saying this is definitively the case why our buildings aren't as beautiful as they used to be but I think so much more of our energy is thrusted into the creatives and and, and the people that have those giftings and abilities are doing that and telling stories, right? I mean, humans are storied creatures, but particularly in America, we have an immense value on narrative and stories. And then we export our stories to the rest of the world. That's right. There are degrees of
0: appreciation (laughs) that the rest of the world has with that and some places where they don't like that, you know? what occurs to me as you're even sharing this and this isn't necessarily what we were going to talk about today but it occurs to me as you are sort of reflecting on architecture and maybe the brutalism of modern american neighborhood architecture I, you know i wonder if if in the past the craftsmanship that went into homes or even just the detail and and the charm that went into homes i'm wondering if that's happening because at a certain level, there is a cohesive narrative that existed in the past that doesn't now. And so we have to put a lot more energy as individual human beings into making sense of the world. And so there's a, there's a sense in which external aesthetics, as important as those are to us, you know, our capacity to mm-hmm. fill the world with beauty in all the areas is diminished because we live in a, a fragmented, I don't know, mega postmodern world where narratives have, they've become individual. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally.
1: I also think this does connect to, I think, some of the things we want to talk about because the stories that we tell, and I don't just mean in a movie or a book, every commercial that we consume, every time we flip through our phone and see another ad is a story. And it's a story about values, and there are claims being made in all stories about what is valuable right so i think one of the things that we can confess to in america is maybe in times past we've always had this deep american value for the pursuit of some material gain right i mean that's that's why people live in the west um obviously Europeans settled here Some maybe for religious freedom, you know, that's part of the narrative that we wrestle with, but obviously a a large amount of Europeans that came here and settled here were in pursuit of material gain, right? That's a huge part of our story. And I, I think also, I mean, that has accelerated and there's a degree in which there might be a principality and power of greed that sees beauty as a means to an end, Mm. which is perverted, it objectifies it. And so you might even see, and I'm, you know, this is just, I'm just throwing out theory here, connecting some theological, philosophical ideas, and we'd probably need to do really a lot more analysis on actually talking to architects and, you know, uh, people in the construction business. But my gut feeling is that even when it comes to the way buildings are built and homes are built now, is that the goal is efficiency, saving money to maximize profits. Yes. Whereas uh, you're saying maybe there was a time in which that principality of greed wasn't as strong. It's always been there, but we hadn't fed it as much. It wasn't as strong. And so there was maybe, like you're saying, still a degree of this rich, deep historic truth that beauty is one of the ways—it's a door to God. It's a door to seeing beyond where we are, and people got that in the quality of their craftsmanship. And this, I think this does connect to some of the things I know we wanted to talk about. I don't know if you want to frame the question you know, had thrown out to me first before I maybe yeah.
0: share how I think this connects all together. Yeah, I, I'd like to. I love what you're saying there. And before I even frame the question, I just want to say one more thing. You know, part of what you're getting at here even reminds me of this idea. There's a sense in which in times past, perhaps craftsmanship spoke of the, of the individual and, and their connection mm-hmm. to beauty more. And that yes. was valuable. Whereas what I kind of hear you saying right now, there's a sense in which things like greed or profitability has accelerated. yes. And so now that's the measuring stick. It's overtaken something like my personal investment into greater beauty or, or yes, my, my yes. personal investment in something we might, we might call ideally craftsmanship. There's this mm-hmm. other story that's come and kind of swallowed that one. Yes. I think that's a great way of saying it. That's yeah. exactly what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, here's what we actually wanted to talk about today. We didn't want to talk about bungalows. <laughs> And great houses. Actually, what Paul and I wanted to talk about, and the reason I reached out to him, is because, as everyone knows, last week, on January 6th, at the nation's capital, we had this sort of explosion, uh, this boiling over, lots of angry people, lots of mob mentality, and it was really Mm -hmm. shocking, and I think... More than shocking, I'll just say this, Paul. For me, it was really, really sad. And the reason yes. why it was sad is a, people died. So there's just a, let's acknowledge like loss of life. B, anytime you see like anger and violence, there's something about that that just, as a Christian, yes, you know, it's like okay, that's I don't know that that touches me in a place that I can only describe as sad. But I think the thing that really bothered me was. We see this crowd storm the Capitol, take the Capitol, a crowd that is clearly invested, you know, since we've been talking about stories and meaning making, Mm -hmm. in a particular story and a particular definition of what the world is about in the current moment. And I, I think the sadness for me is you see this crowd that's made up of, you know, right wing militia people, neo Nazis, but then also lots and lots of Christians. Like pastors from my state, like actual pastors Mm -hmm. taking selfies. Uh, So in the midst of a crowd where there's Trump flags, in the midst of a crowd where there's Confederate flags or neo-Nazi paraphernalia, you have nooses, nooses, gallows. Mm -hmm. You have signs that say, Jesus Jesus saves. saves. And you have Christian flags and you have crosses and I just wanted to have you on because this is a lot of the place where you do your work in your podcast mm. and I I you know I just wanted to say given all of that Paul what happened how did we get here how did how did christians become a part of something that is so obvious in my mind antithetical to the way of Jesus who lays his life down who Looks to serve. Like how did how did this happen? I'd I'd love for you to just riff on that maybe for a moment. Yeah, and I've seen
1: people try to downplay the significance of it. And historically, we haven't had a violent storming of the capital since the war of eighteen twelve, when the British invaded. There's never, as far as anybody, uh, any historian I've read from, there's never been a time in which the Confederate flag has been in the halls of the nation's capital. So even if you are a patriot, right? That's right. Even if let's say you, you really are earnestly you you saw something in America that's been lost in the past and you you really with all earnestness wanted to make America great again. It's hard to see how this is that, yeah. right? But the thing for me that was most disturbing, just like for you, was seeing the Jesus save signs. And it wasn't just in that moment, knowing uh, that there was Christian participation in that, but knowing that this has kind of been boiling for a while. And the question that we do want to ask is, how do we get here? And we want to confess right from the get-go that, and, you know, I talked to my dad after this, and my dad's in a, obviously of a different generation. We'll maybe talk about that eventually. But for him, you know, he brought up a good point. He's like, hey, you know what? Even after spending years with Jesus, Judas still betrayed him and got some wild ideas in his head. So, I think it's important. Like uh, I know pastors are wrestling with if they've even had people in their congregations, they're going, How, how did this how did this happen? And there there can be a degree in which you might have done everything right. Uh, and none of us are Jesus. That's the also the important point. <laughs> you know, is, is what we want. We want to be reflective yeah. on this. We can't assume, well, Jesus had Judas and none of his disciples other than John showed up at the cross. So hey, I can't be responsible for what happens in my congregation. We don't want to start there, but we also want to say it's not, you know, this isn't about guilt or shame for anybody that's in places of leadership. Okay. So how does, how does the stories that we believe and how do we come to believe those stories? I like to think of it as a, as a hierarchy of values within us. At the top of that is what we could call our guiding story. So it's the narrative. It's the thing that helps that we've learned that helps us make sense of reality, our experience of it. And we don't get born with a guiding story. We learn a guiding story. We don't get born with language. We have the capacity for language. Most people are born into the world. Not all are. But we are born searching for that. And the culture that we inhabit gives us, as we are children, gives us the guiding story that we believe about life and what it means to have purpose and significance and where is it all going. And in that guiding story, so you could think of that as almost like the top of a, of a pyramid, but yep. there's actually something on top of that. We'll get to that in a second. Below that is are our values. Our values descend from that guiding story. So once we have this narrative that we've been told, this is the point of life and the purpose all around that. And from that comes our values. What we might say is, man, I really value beauty or truth or justice or, you know, those are things that we would say, those are good values because we agree to a certain story, right? If you don't agree to that story, you're going to have very different values. From those values that we have, descends our aims. So we aim our lives towards those values. And underneath our aims, our goals are our behaviors and practices. So, one of the great ways that if we think about it in this framework, and actually, I don't know if you're going to do a video of this or not, but I, I have that up on my whiteboard right yeah, there. I can see. And it. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I come into my office and I have to remind myself. What is the story I believe? And on top of that all, so here's the, where this all connects to our theology and to our faith, is what sits atop of that hierarchy of values is functionally God in our life, okay? And I'm not saying that, you know, if our behaviors and our, the practices of our life show that our aims are towards, let's say, a value of greed, that Molech is, in fact, ontologically God. That's right. I'm saying, though, we live as if—I should say mammon. Mammon's a more appropriate, yeah, you know, so. ancient idol for for greed than Molech. But you get—hopefully, you guys that are listening get the idea, right? That's right. So w- the way we actually live in the world is what we actually believe. How we act is how we actually—A-C-T—act act actually. That's how— How we act is what we actually believe in the world. And this is really at the core of the Christian narrative, the the, the story of Scripture. And this is one that we sometimes wrestle with because we think that it's just agreement with particular propositions. And we go, if we agree and sign off on a doctrine contract, then, you know, that's what it means to have faith. But, you know, the whole of the Christian story and the early Christians felt that they were doing something that they said was followers of the way, right? So the earliest Christians, it wasn't just, do you agree to these sets of propositions? It's, are you following in the way of Jesus, a total way of being, the way you live in the world? Okay. So the question that we need to ask then is, what programs are guiding story, because if we didn't get born into the world with a guiding story we're born into the world with a human nature right we can we can think of this theologically right that we're that we're born into the world as image bearers again but within the christian narrative we're also born into the world with predispositions towards sin if we want to frame that in the biological sense like we're born into the world as a human species and humans have a universal human nature that we could say if we were studying dolphins, there's a diversity of dolphin behavior, but there are some fundamental qualities that we say that's what makes a dolphin a dolphin, a monkey, a monkey, a bear, a bear. So we track in so far. Okay. Totally. So we've got, we born with this human nature that longs for meaning. I think that's one of the things that's unique about humans and we can see it across cultures, across time. And that gives us evidence that there's part of our universal human nature, which is to find a story that fills us with a sense of meaning and purpose. And then we have our unique genetic personality predispositions. So our human human nature is inherited. We have genetic predispositions, which some people, as part of their genetic predisposition, might be a little bit more prone to being anxious, for example. Or their genetic predisposition has hardwired them to be more relaxed. And and like we can see these things as we study people and their, their personality across time, that there is a degree of in which our personalities can be shaped and molded by our environment. And it's usually, but what usually happens though, is our genetic predisposition. Let's say, are you orderly or not orderly? Okay. Have you ever taken the the big five personality test? I actually items? haven't. I, I know okay. about
0: it, but I haven't
1: taken yeah. it. So you take the big five personality test and there's a bunch of other ones like, you know, the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs. These are helpful tools to maybe help us understand how our, not our complete human nature that everybody shares in, but the unique thing in us that we're born with, where those predispositions are aimed at. And the big five might be like the most scientifically valid. They use it in the branches of military, corporate, psychologists vouch for it. So you got openness, how open are you to new experiences, how orderly you are, how disorderly, you just might have a predisposition to it. We see it with our kids, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) You know, agreeableness versus disagreeableness. I won't go through the entire list. So that's primarily inherited, but there's degrees in which that disposition that we have can be aimed towards good and bad purposes. Okay. So those, we can think of those as two layers, the guiding story and the values that we come to be programmed. Where does that take shape? That is in this mediating layer, this arena that we call culture. So the mediating layer of our spiritual programming, our psychological programming, for those that might be uncomfortable with the word spiritual, alright yeah. is culture. And that's the shared arena where our universal human nature takes unique expression. What are maybe some basic things to the human experience that we all long for? We long for acceptance. You know, so humans, we are social species. We long for connection with other people. What else do we look for? Well, I mean, we're trying to survive. (laughs) We, in general, like to stay alive. Biologically, we also look to procreate once we hit you know, post-puberty or, you know, we get to that point, those are biological drives. And so we can see that across cultures, across time. People look for those things. They look to be part of a group. But the way that group bonds together is different. Like that's the mediating layer of culture. So you might go, let's take this in a church context, right? You can go from maybe your church, Adam, which in the vineyard is going to be is a culture, it's a subculture, Yes. it's more open to like visible postures of worship than if you were to maybe go down the road to the Anglican church, right? And that might not always be the case. That's a generalization, but we know those generalizations are (laughs) largely true. The vineyard is a more expressive physically, maybe a little bit louder, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that would be pretty much universally true. So that is, you know, the arena in which particular personal drives, uh, universal human nature drives start to take shape. All right. Here's what this is where this stuff starts to connect. Okay. We have large cultural value systems. We could call these macro cultures. And a lot of times they're based on national boundaries, Right. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes they transcend. Like there's some cultural similarities between Canadians and Americans, but there's also, you talk to Canadians that that are seeing the stuff in the news and they're scratching their heads. That's right. Because they have a different story in Canada than we do in America. You can hear it in our national anthem and their national anthem. Those are liturgical practices. So what do we sing about in our national anthem before every football game and people place their hands over their hearts? We talk about a war.
0: And And the 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 home of the free free. and the land of the brave. Like individual bravery is a big part of our story. Yes. Individualism. So there was this
1: Dutch social psychologist. He's since passed. Heert Hofstede is a difficult name to say. And he did this groundbreaking research with IBM doing cross-cultural analysis and comparison where they were evaluating essentially cultural values. The United States among – I think they did this – these evaluations among 150 or 170 nations in the world so national societal values america has the num ranks number 1 in individualism wow which is no surprise now that's not a good or a bad thing i'm just not making is. an assessment on whether or not that's good or bad i'm just stating it as is so let's say here in America, right, we have this high value of individualism, okay? But we also have these other values, like Hofstede, working with IBM, they figured out, you know, the, the United States is largely a more masculine-valued oriented culture. And, so, and Paul, what did they mean by masculine-valued culture? Yeah, so when we look at across the human species, there are some shared traits among not all, so it's not particular to individual people, but we could say here are some shared traits among males and females as a general overview sure. of the human species. I want to be clear on this. So this, this isn't for everybody. So think of the most extreme version of uh, what masculinity would look like as a species, the most extreme version of what femininity could look like. So masculinity Typically places a high value on achievement, right? Even at the cost of someone's feelings getting hurt, not, not that big a deal. I mean, just think of—and again, it's not to individual people, but you think of, you know, your most masculine sports coaches, yeah. and they don't care. Like a Bill Belichick doesn't
0: care about your feelings. No. Right? It, what do they want to do? We yeah, want to win. win. Yeah. We want to win. Well, and this came up even a couple of weeks ago with our beloved Kentucky Wildcats. Basketball. Tell me. Let's let's hear it. Let's yeah, hear some I mean, well, talk. it just it sort of came up. I mean, our, our <laughs> yeah. team is terrible this year, which is maybe the first time in Cal's era, maybe the second time since Cal has been here, Coach Cal. But a couple of weeks ago on his his Monday night call in show, he was basically saying exactly what you're talking about right now. Cal said he was talking about conversations he had with his players, and he was saying, I'm gonna come at you. And this is how I love you. Mm -hmm. Like, so he was actually connecting this idea of like, I'm gonna coach you hard, I'm gonna be on you, and this is actually how I care about you. And you can either, like, you know, you can either toughen up, or maybe this just isn't the place for you because this is how I am, and this is how I'm gonna show you my care, right?
1: Mm -hmm. So, in that kind of attitude, we would say America is more like that than a place, for example, like Sweden. Sweden scores as the highest feminine culture, uh, feminine value culture among the 150 or 170 nations scored. So you're going to experience major differences in culture in that dimension if you move from the United States to Sweden, okay? So this is just to say that we have these stories on the macro level that give us values that shape our aims, they shape our behaviors and practices. But it's not just that here in the US, we've got this macro culture, and then everybody acts like that. It's obviously not the case. We also have microcultures, subcultures that have their own stories, right? You got... Sports culture like you're talking about yep. now, if Coach Cal was like a, a preschool teacher and talked that same way, it wouldn't fly because it's a different culture. It'd be kind of fun. That'd be a great like SNL skit.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's um, like a kindergarten cop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: exactly. Or <laughs> yeah. what was it? That uh, SNL skit where Peyton Manning was playing with kids years back and just pelting them yeah. and touch football. Okay. So that doesn't work because it's a different culture. A different guiding story, different values, different expectations of behaviors and practices. So you got
0: sports culture, you might have southern culture. Yeah, right? definitely. And then, then even thing. and then even here in Kentucky, there's permutations of microculture that are that are very specific. So in the east, in the mountains, it is such a different, different culture. One that mm-hmm. I've come to appreciate, because where I live is it's not in the mountains. It's on the edge, but it's not in the mountains. But there is a, and I'm trying to figure out the right word here, but there is a, a tribalism. I don't mm. know how to experience, you know, I, I know yeah, that yeah. comes off as like a really negative thing. It's not necessarily a negative thing, but there's a sense in, in like... Maybe a kinship. Kinship or Appalachian culture where yeah. it's like, you come against us, you come against me, you came against us. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, yeah, like so it's you, less you, individualistic and more collective. They value the collective group, yeah, the family, so like, the tribe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's never it's never you came against one person in the family. No, 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 no. No, no, you came against us. This sort of like historic Appalachian story of Hatfield's and McCoy's, it's rooted in something that's actually very real at a micro level.
1: Mm-hmm. So that exists still within the the larger macro-American culture, right? So it's not that the macro-culture subsumes and consumes and there isn't variation of expression, right? So you could see a difference. If you take someone from that Appalachian uh, culture and you put them in once upon a time when we had concerts and stuff, you thrust them into like punk scene or hardcore scene, you know, th- those are cultures too. You, then you obviously you've got like family cultures, you know? which are really micro. Yeah. And your family might have a particular story and particular values which is on that level is usually shaped by those genetic predispositions that you have to certain ethnic group cultures and of course you got church cultures. You have larger, you could say there's oh, there's a sense in which when people talk about evangelicalism, sure. You could say your church is an evangelical church. Do you feel comfortable saying that? Even yeah, if I think I think historically, is you, loaded.
0: No, yeah, I mean it's still such a loaded word, but I think historically you would put the vineyard in the evangelical wing. Like it, it sets as a bridge between classic Pentecostalism and the evangelical world. It's so it's that charismatic permutation of of whatever yeah. it means to be an evangelical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you could go to your church which is going to have some different
1: liturgical practices than if you came visit my church which isn't in the south. We're in South Minneapolis. We're evangelical. We don't have that vineyard DNA. Yeah. Which it's just different, right? So we can acknowledge those differences exist. Now, where we this is where things get really interesting historically. There are degrees of harmony between our microcultures, our subcultures, and the macro-culture that we are in, right? But how does the macro-culture stay the macro-culture? How does it maintain its position and, and to keep that story as the, the larger overarching story that maybe connects all of these groups? And I don't want to frame it negatively, but maintains its power as well. Well, that's through the liturgy, of the liturgical and we don't think of things we don't think of things for example like like the national anthem at an NFL football game as liturgy i didn't even grow up in in and not just grow up but even most of my adult years in charismatic and pentecostal world even think of the word liturgy but all i mean by the word liturgy is the practices of worship yep. that we participate in not just singing. There's all sorts of different practices. So I wouldn't have thought when I was younger about singing the national anthem with my hand over my heart as a liturgical practice, but it is. It totally is. It's an expression of devotion. It's something that at the behavioral level—so this is where the stuff gets interesting, right? You can go top down and go, hey, my guiding story changes— my values, my values change my aims, my aims change my practices. But if you want to keep the guiding story or maybe transform someone's guiding story, you transform their behaviors and practices. Mm. So it, you can get people to participate in things that they might not even be fully aware of all the connections that are being made, but implicitly these are these are connections that are happening. So how in the world? I was talking to somebody about this. I had a friend who grew up with me in my Christian school, went to our K through twelve Christian school, was in my church, right? And when 9-11 happened, we had like a prayer meeting. He came out of the prayer meeting, this very dear close friend of mine, and he said, I feel like God's calling
0: me to go fight the Taliban. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, it had been reinforced for years through the public liturgy of American civil religion, you might say. Yeah. And within our own church and school culture, were there
1: he somehow had made the connection, even though I don't think everybody, anybody ever explicitly told him, hey, you know, America is the essentially the kingdom of God, and any attack on America is an attack on the values of the kingdom. And nobody explicitly said that stuff, but there are certain practices that we did every day in our school. Like, we're going to place our hand over our heart, and we're going to pledge to the American flag first, the then Christian flag. Second. Second. Yeah. And... Again, nobody just flat out said, hey, this is the order or anything like that. But you make, especially as children, you make these implicit connections. You start seeing a connection of meaning uh, between the two. That's historically actually been the case in Christianity in America, that these two have been historically
0: blend, not blended, but a syncretic sort of civil religion, right? Yeah, you used the word a moment ago harmonized, which I think is a it's kind of a great word because harmony harmony carries that idea of distinction but cooperation, distinct notes mm-hmm. that cooperate together in a new way to make a chord, yeah. which is more powerful. It's it's not just it's not just uh benign, it's a connection yes. that actually increases the power. I mean, thinking of this symbol in the way that you were talking about it just a moment ago at your Christian school, the other day I was driving, I forget where I was, but I was I was driving here, and it was here in Kentucky, and during the drive on two different places, two different places, there were flagpoles with American flags on top and Christian flags underneath it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's exactly what we're talking about. Again, it's this harmonization of what we assume to be the kingdom of God with a national vision, which in a really subtle way, all 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 of a sudden begins to harmonize and and mean something new. Right. And the question is, is this a genuine harmony that
1: somebody that's a follower of the way of Jesus should see as being harmonious, or is it assimilation? Is it assimilation of... What we would say is the kingdom of God being assimilated by the story of Jesus, the way of Jesus being assimilated by something that looks like it in some regard. Maybe we see some harmony. This is always the struggle. So this is not unique to our time and era. You know, guys like H.R. Nyberg Leslie Newbegin, these sorts of theologians of culture, th- The way they've framed it is the struggle, the challenge for Christians has always been, always been from the very get-go, how do you navigate what the shape of the good news looks like, what the way of Jesus looks like in your culture? So that's always the tension, and we're always trying to navigate what does the good news look like in our culture? Now, in my parents' generation, grandparents' generation, they felt like there was more harmony between American values and values that they would say are Christian values, right? Yeah. And this may or may not have been the case. I don't I don't want to argue that. <clears throat> and I think there may be just a few pet issues that people looked at, you know, maybe attitudes towards sexuality, for example. And we could look back and go, hey, in the Leave it to Beaver generation, it, you know— is monogamy, you know, committed. I don't know what divorce rates. Y- you yeah. might look at a few things go, hey, there's a degree of harmony there. We had prayer in public schools. You know, that was a big one. Yeah. When that left, my parents' generation, they were very upset about that. So for them, they saw a degree of harmony. But as we got into the 1960s, right? And we have this cultural revolution. This cultural revolution started in that generation calling into question, not the connection between, you know, these these narratives that maybe they had learned about things going all the way back to manifest destiny, yeah. you know, to the stories we tell about how the pilgrims came here. To just pursue religious freedom and there's degrees in which that is true, but then totally neglect treatment of the native peoples that were here. There are ways in which and I know I started talking about this stuff and instantly people are like, hey, he's going woke here. And yep. that's <laughs> that's not the case. I don't that's that's such a difficult area to even have discourse about. Yeah. But these stories that we told, but then you actually talk to like a Native American, you go, Hey, what do you guys think about Thanksgiving? you know, and you hear it from their perspective and you go, okay, well, there's competing stories happening here. When this cultural shift happened in the 1960s and we started seeing a shift in maybe attitudes towards sexuality, what the family unit should look like, et cetera, et cetera. I think the response that happened, and we're still dealing with it today, is we saw ourselves as part of the macro culture, that Christians were the macro culture. And now these subcultures and microcultures that have different values and different stories are emerging. And it's a challenge to our position of influence and power and prestige in the macro culture, which was kind of true, but some of the critiques were valid, right? I mean, ask an African-American Christian. Whether or not they feel like America has been a Christian nation, yeah, it's a radically different story. Totally different story when you are brought over here against your will, and you have. So, one of the most amazing things is how African American Black Christianity took the stories from the slaves that were slaveholders that were imprisoning them, and they still saw the kernel of truth that is Jesus Christ. They clung to that. They transformed the story. It's, it's amazing. It's a shocking work of the Spirit. It is. It's important that we hear <laughs> that side of the story too, as well. When we saw this stuff happen, predominantly white, because we're a predominantly white country, we still are predominantly white, predominantly church-attending culture at this time, The cultural collisions happen, and I think this is where, to me, like the turning point in the story really takes a turn and leads to a moment like last week, is the posture that we took in that moment, and I say we as in Christians, you know, I was just born at the time, was we took the posture of there's competition for power in what's going to be the macro culture. And what that means is we see dissonance with these subcultures and we're going to war, a culture war. Yeah. Since the 1980s, I think winning a culture war shifted to becoming the primary discipleship goal, the spiritual formation goal of so many Christian institutions. And that includes churches, K-12 Christian schools. Christian colleges. I mean, I went to youth rallies that were called Battle Cry. I went and sat through apologetics conferences that were about, you know, standing your ground, winning a war. And because of this, what we ended up doing for 30, what I mean, I'm how old am I? 37 for almost 40 years is because we assumed that that story was true, we kept feeding ourselves on liturgies and spiritual practices that continued to reinforce that narrative. And that narrative could come from all sorts of different places, even people that weren't Christians, as long as they thought the culture war needed to be won for this particular American vision of reality. Yeah.
0: it, it 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 occurs to me that the idea of trajectory here is really important. It's, it's like, wow, you know, you could be off one degree and maybe <clears throat> for a certain amount of time or distance, that one degree doesn't matter. But if you keep applying time and distance to even one degree of change without some change along the way, without some reorientation yes. midstream, then all of a sudden you get 40 years later, 50 years later, 55 years later, wow, we've really diverged from, Mm -hmm. you know, to go back to what you said a moment ago, the Jesus way. Yes. Yeah. And when you feasted on
1: culture war talk radio, and let's say you do that every day on your commute, and then we'll frame it like that, that's been happening since the eighties. Let's, let's think of, in a more modern context, you uh, every day after you get off work, even on your lunch break, you're on YouTube looking at conspiracy videos about how that feeds this narrative that there's this culture war. And behind it is some satanic Illuminati, you know, and anybody that is on a different side, a different subculture, it could be an immigrant, they could be a Democrat they are part of some army of darkness in the world. You keep feeding that story. You keep practicing that. You keep meditating that, meditating on that. And what ends up happening is those behaviors and practices. So watching a YouTube video is a practice that can hack your value system. And the 30-minute sermon that Adam Russell preaches, and Adam Russell is a great preacher. I've heard, I'm not going to just butter you up, Adam Russell is a great preacher. I've heard Adam Russell preach. If I go to Adam Russell's church, and Adam Russell is like, this is the way of Jesus, and he is faithful, faithful to the best of his ability to be within a stream that we can trace back to the scriptures and to the apostolic witness. And he's calling people to repentance and all this stuff. And you sit in there for 30 minutes, but you've done 10 hours of talk radio, Fox News, MSNBC, five hours of QAnon videos. I'm going to
0: tell you what your story is going to be. It's not going to be the story that Adam tells you for 30 minutes on a Sunday. That's amazing, Paul. And what I really like about what you're saying here, disturbing as it may be, is the connection you made a moment ago when you said, watching a YouTube video is a practice. Totally. Right? I mean, it's so obvious, but man, it's so obvious it's almost invisible. Like, even when you said it, like, I knew it, and I know that that's a practice, or, or listening to a podcast is a practice. But even when you said it, it occurred to me, wow, it's so... It's so routinized into our our life that it feels invisible. It doesn't feel liturgical to me. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel spiritual to me. But But there it is, right? It is. And then you add on top of that, the things that we've learned about the YouTube algorithms in the last five years, about the fact that YouTube has changed its algorithm in recent years away from clicking on videos to time viewing videos. So that changes the algorithm to give you things that will keep you on the site, which is only going to reinforce whatever internal bias you have to begin with, right? And we get back to that principality and power of greed, because why are they doing that? Because they get more ad revenue that way. That's right, more ad revenue. And then all of a sudden, anyone can be radicalized. Mm -hmm. That's really where we're at. Totally, and the thing I want to make clear is I'm not saying because
1: there was a degree in which part of the culture war mentality was, I, I I don't think it worked, but there was a degree, especially youth group kids of the 80s and 90s, it was like we're not going to consume anything secular, which didn't really end up being the case, that's right? Because right. you're in a lot of places, people are still consuming their talk radio and Rush Limbaugh and all these other things, but when it came to music and movies and you know that that's not. If you take away that what I'm saying is you need to not be on YouTube, that's not the point. But if you are not aware of the power, the spiritually formative, psychologically formative power of YouTube, podcasts, Netflix, the narratives that we're consuming there, if you're not aware of it, it will hack your value system. And it will transform your values, it will transform your guiding story, and atop of that guiding story, it will change the gods or spirits, if you will, that you follow. And every culture in every era in history has understood that. That is why in the past they fashioned idols. That's why in Athens, atop the Acropolis, you had the Parthenon and a statue to Athena because the people of Athens valued wisdom. Right. And they personified it in that way and they put it up and you would bow to that in hopes that what they were looking for was like, we want to have wisdom manifest in our culture. When people were sacrificing children in the hands of Molech. You know, the ancients got this and we look around and we can't see right in front of us these same things. We don't necessarily have statues, but we have flags. We have other images. We have, you know, even like, why did people storm the Capitol? Because the Capitol is a symbol. The U.S. Capitol is obviously where the people, the elected representatives were, but it's also a symbol It's a symbol of power. Yeah. It is, and that's why the storming of it is so disturbing, and, and it is different. You know, it is different than when the riots hit here uh, in Minneapolis, and, like, uh, my friend lost his mom-and-pop pharmacy. It, it was terrible. Like, it was destroyed and rioted. That's an awful thing, but symbolically, it's still very different than what yeah. the symbolism of this means, and people pick up on that.
0: Yeah. Well, and just even in terms of participation, some of the riots during the summer, clearly a similar kind of vibe in in, in respect of lots of different kinds of people were using their voice. So you had everything from like extreme Marxist anarchists, and then you also had you know people who were just saying wow the black experience has not been appreciated or seen for what it really is and so gosh this is a moment of reckoning and then to a much much smaller degree you had some christians saying yes you know there's something about the experience of people of color that just hasn't been listened to and so we want to show solidarity with people who at this moment feel weak right mm-hmm you know there's some of that i think the difference here for me is at least in some of what we've seen in the last few years but especially last week there was so much of the church behind it it wasn't a fringe aspect of like what the church might believe but it was like mm-hmm. kind of front and center yeah oh yeah and but okay this is another point that isn't as obvious
1: there's ways in which Not just, so I I talked about things like talk radio or YouTube, which are maybe external to the church, but there are ways in which the liturgy and practices of our church communities have continued to feed that guiding story. And there's subtle ways. like For example, this is a really great time to reflect and go, does even our church governance, does... The way we do services lead to the possibility of any of our leaders becoming narcissists, and do we have a culture that readily accepts and celebrates narcissism? Mm, that's a great question. That's and a this that's one's a Christian. really hard. And I speak, even though I'm not in a like explicitly charismatic church, I'm still a charismatic. Yeah. And that was one thing that 12 years ago, when I was deep in the charismatic world, traveling, doing all the conferences, all the big names in the charismatic world. I had deep concerns about, I had deep concerns about a culture in which there are people, I'll frame it as a question instead of being preachy. How can it be that there are people that are willing to pay 200 bucks to go to a conference to hear someone who has never committed themselves to a local church and all they do is travel around and tell people what the church should be like,
0: but they've That's never a huge committed problem. themselves.
1: <laughs> yeah, huge problem. Yeah, And I'm, I'm framing that as a question in hopes that people can see that connection.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've just been thinking in the last few years... Not in the exact way that I'm maybe thinking about it this morning, but definitely it's, it's changed, and especially since you brought up the idea of just, you know, what is what is the Christian formation that our worship services are offering or our church governance, our ecclesiology, our wider theology? I've, I've been trying to think through some of those things. And just even in the last week, I've, I've been thinking about, wow, you know... A Christian liturgy that makes room for lament seems to be pretty important right now. Yeah. To be able to hold before God, hey, these are the things we're sad about. And not only are we sad about it, but God, they, it, this seems to be, this is something you have to fix. God, we don't know what to do about this, you know? So a Christian liturgy that has some of that, up, uh, but also a Christian liturgy that maybe makes a big deal about things like communion, because that's yeah. not always a big deal in the charismatic world. Oh no, yeah, you know the this idea that everyone can come to the table, and that the table is where Jesus is handing out his body and blood, and this is what we need, and you you asked the question a minute ago, uh, do we have a church culture that could raise up narcissists you know mm-hmm. I mean you know, it's maybe one hack to narcissist as leadership in the church could be an emphasis on the table which you know definitely it doesn't mean that narcissism couldn't happen in that space
1: no it still can yeah
0: but hope, can. but but is there any invitation in our in our liturgy is there any invitation in our practices that lead all of us myself yeah. included who could be given mm-hmm. to narcissism to come to the table and say you know what Jesus says that I have a need every week and that he is the answer to the need that I have, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like, I, I, feel like mm-hmm. I was good this week, air quotes. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm yeah. good. Well, Jesus says I have a need, even mm. when I don't feel like it, you know? And I, those are important spiritual practices that need to be embodied. And I just love what you were saying there, that even the formation of our church services or the songs that we sing. I mean, yes. I, I, listen, Paul, like my text threads have been exploding in the last few months with people really asking me deep dive questions about the nature of the songs that we sing in Christian worship uh, there's there's a bigger sensitivity to that right now than I've ever seen in my life because I think mm, people That's encouraging. I think so too. It's very encouraging because yeah. I think people are starting to wake up to the fact oh we have sang victory songs for maybe decades. You know, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like by the way, there, I, I believe there is victory totally, in the Christian totally. message, right? Yes, yes. But it's a the, victory. It's a victory that first embodies death. It's a it's a resurrection that first gets planted in the ground. You know, and so the victory the victory is in God's story. That's right.
1: Being victorious, and, and the so victory if we is, don't confront it, we can we can misplace our hope we can misplace and misunderstand what faithfulness looks like, Yeah, right? The faithfulness of God, because we think it's achieving our ends. And if we're not constantly through the practices, the telling of the story, and not just on a Sunday morning, because this is something I think we're really going to have to make a huge shift on, because we have all these other formational inputs going on throughout the week. So churches that are event-centric, and it's the Sunday event, is the pinnacle of everything, You're, I just don't think you're going to be able to compete. I don't yeah. think it's not valuable but it's going to be stuff in small groups it's going to be people gathering in homes having discussions it's going to be you know one of the things i've really appreciated some of my more reformed friends uh in particular i think of like those like kind of in the dutch reformed strain yeah they have not taken the nationalistic bait whatsoever and Isn't one of the reasons why uh, is that you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself reformed or a Calvinist, but they have taken very seriously two things. That is Bible study, like serious study of the scripture, because they are serious about God's story, even if we have differences of opinion on how to interpret points of doctrine. But I've also found that a lot of them are are much more aware of church history too, as well. And so when you are history-less, and that's part of maybe a symptom of evangelicalism, but also a symptom of charismatic and Pentecostal tradition, thinking that the past was filled with stuffy religious people that weren't open to the Spirit of God. They weren't full gospel, and you're detached from story. So the question that goes through my mind when I see a scene like last week is I go, okay— would any Christian in the first century or second century, would any Christian leader, would any apostle, but even beyond that, like we could go ahead and be like, Hey, you know what, we got the scriptures, but what did it look like after the canon of scripture was closed and people started practicing this way of Jesus and a hundred years after Jesus died? Would anybody have done something like that? Nope. <laughs> no, it would have been—it would have been a foreign concept. I mean, would have been a foreign concept. I, I ask this question uh, frequently. You know, would you have ever seen in a church community a uh, statue of the golden eagle of Rome in the front of where people worship? No. So get your flags out. Like, I'm not talking about the prophetic banner flags. (laughs) (laughs) Worship with those, you know, all you want. But if you week in and week out, let's say, you know, this isn't to pick on the songwriter here, but week in and week out, you've got an American flag in front of your worship space and you're singing, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against us? It's those implicit connections that our brain makes that might not even be explicit, but that's still happening. Uh, The symbols are still... Our brains are still making
0: those connections together. And so... And that's what symbols do, right? They're shortcuts for bigger stories. They are windows, the aesthetic...
1: Is I don't know if we've talked about this or just with Andy before, Andy Squires before, but aesthetic symbols are windows into the spiritual world. And what I mean by the spiritual world is this invisible domain of values, ideas. That's the the stuff you can't see. What's beauty? You can't see beauty until it takes an aesthetic expression. All right? So anytime we look at a song, anytime we look at a piece of art, when we look at a building— any creation made by human hands is made because it's a behavior and practice. It's aimed towards somebody's values, their invi- their guiding story, and the God that sits atop of that all. So I'm, I like, hearing you're getting a bunch of text messages because you're really—I mean, Adam, with what you're doing in Vineyard Music, it's really important, you know? And I'm, I'm deeply encouraged.
0: Yeah, people are texting it's yeah. a question It's a question in their minds right now, and this is what's interesting is the text messages about this particular topic started mostly with my friends outside of the United States, so it started mostly with the Brits, the Canadians, and some of my yeah. friends in South America, right because their detachment from our particular American story that we live here in the United States gives them enough distance to be able to to see a different angle and tend to ask a new question. But what was encouraging is that in the last maybe four to five months, lots and lots of people from across the United States have begun to ask the question, huh, I wonder if the songs we've been singing have maybe had some stuff missing. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I've become
1: more selective in even where the songs are coming from.
0: That's a question that a lot of people are
1: asking right now. And I don't. Like, I really want to be honoring and respectful of the hubs that evangelical songs are coming from, because there's some very good people in there that are are doing their best, just like we are, to try to follow the way of Jesus. But I also want to take a look at and go, okay, the places that the songs are coming from, are the communities there being shaped in a direction that fosters narcissism nationalism, conspiracy culture.
0: Yeah, those are big questions.
1: And I don't think it's as easy as just going, well, we don't sing about those things in the song, so I can import it. I think you can transform a song. I totally believe that. But I'm exercising more caution in the past few years because the question enters my mind when I see places where it just—like the Jesus saves sign and the noose, they don't see any cognitive—there's no cognitive dissonance being experienced. There's no spiritual dissonance. And I go, if you're singing the same songs, it's not just about the songs. That's one dimension. If you're singing the same songs as part—a main part of your worship, your your, your liturgical practice as a church community, and it's not causing you to question Jesus saves and a noose together— I go okay. Maybe there's a better story we can tell with our songs.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that I've been wanting to produce more of, not just in terms of songs, but in terms of thinking, and in you know, to use your pyramid scheme again here. <laughs> but <you're, laughs> I'm selling you a pyramid scheme today. That's right. This is the new pyramid scheme. Yeah. But that idea of like values and practices at the bottom, right? Those two that kind of go together. But even just theologically thinking. You know, we have this idea of what the power of God is, at least in the charismatic Pentecostal world, like the power of God equals one thing. Mm -hmm. It always equals breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. Which, by the way, I believe in it. I've literally seen it. Yes. Yes, totally. Me too. I've seen it. I I know what breakthrough is. I believe it. And I, I would like to have more of it. And yet the scripture also shows us that the power of God is the weakness of Jesus, It's the death of Jesus. It's the submission of Jesus. It's the laying down his own life. No one snatches it from me, Jesus says. You know, it's it's, it's, like, this is the power of God. That's right. It isn't just overcoming in that, you know, maybe quicker or more magical sense. It's it's something much, much deeper and mysterious. And I I just want to keep highlighting that and hopefully try to have songs or church services, sermons, Bible studies, home groups that open people's imaginations to the possibility that when Paul and Jesus and the apostles all say that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Like mm-hmm. we like we have no, almost no cultural ability to absorb that message at this moment. And I think that's the one we need. Totally. And okay, there's a, a huge point
1: of connection that I hope people are open to listening to this. Like, first of all, uh, before I even talk about that point of connection, I want to say this, and I think hopefully people would agree with this. All of our spiritual experiences, our encounters with God are always mediated in our physical body, right? So an encounter with God always gets mediated in the flesh too. I mean, this is a deeply Christian idea. We're not Gnostics, right? So this is embodied the experience that I have in worship, there are actual endorphins that get released in my body that give me the sense that what's going on is good. That doesn't mean it's just that. So I want to preface what I'm about to say by making that connection that I'm not a like a dualist in that sense where you got yeah. spiritual experiences and bodily experiences. They all get mediated in, in our bodies. I'm not saying they're just that. I was talking yesterday, and I'll be putting it out next week, to a behavioral scientist, the University of Toronto, um, John Verveke, and I was kind of even processing some of this stuff with him. And he's not um, a professing Christian, but there's been some really helpful insights from his work, his academic work, into people's spiritual experiences right and what's actually going on physiologically in us and i, I want to make this point of connection because i think it's, it's re- hopefully people can get this at multiple levels theologically biologically psychologically that they can see the harmony the universal harmony of the the, the revelation of of jesus christ okay we need people that pursue okay we could think of sometimes the liturgy of charismatic worship We wouldn't use this framework uh, language, but from a psychological sense, one of the things we're doing is we are pursuing an altered state of consciousness. A lot of these practices that we do, singing, you know, playing drums, the the, the connection that we feel together in the spirit gets us into something that uh, behavioral scientists call the flow state. You know, and and, and there's a lot of different ways our minds get to this place of we are suddenly able to make all these new connections. Like when Steph Curry... Just loses it. He's in the flow state. Yeah, you know. Maybe you've had that in in some sport before, Adam. Where it's like, I know your boys are into soccer. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they basketball. are. They, my boys have <laughs>
0: had it. I their their father is less gifted. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: but you get it in worship too, where you of know. Of some
1: Sometimes we use language like oh, it was just dry or it was anointed. Yeah. You know, and a huge part of that is whether or not we've been able to. Kind of get outside of ourselves, right, for a moment, and what we actually see are these new neural connections that happen in people's brains when they get to that state. But there's a danger too. So, if we are always pursuing, we're going to get in the flow. Like that's the charismatic term, right? Yeah, I mean it is. I I played on a record that was called "Caught in the Flow." <laughs> you know, but we we get in that flow state all the time. But here's like what you're saying, and I I see this point of harmony with the way God has even designed us biologically, if we are in that place and we're like, we're going to get in the flow state, we're going to get in the flow state, we want to experience these endorphin rushes, but we never experience, here's another term from behavioral science, disruption. What ends up happening is we get in this flow state and we start seeing all of these connections, these implicit connections, and all of a sudden, what we what we do is if we never experience disruption or suffering, we continue to feed our confirmation bias, even when we're having these euphoric experiences. So there can be somebody that week in and week out, they're at every prophetic conference in worship, they are lost in the flow. You know, I do think they are God's goodness. They are experiencing it in that moment. But if they don't open themselves up to the way of Jesus, which is the cross and is suffering, what ends up happening is the thing they believed continues to be reinforced. And so I think we have an opportunity to invite people to the now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God to actually call people to carry their cross, to participate in Christ's suffering. Because the thing that suffering does, suffering helps us see when the patterns that we thought we saw in reality, we thought, reality works this way because I see this pattern. When we experience suffering, we start to question, well, maybe that's not really the pattern, right? And this isn't to say that we love suffering— We're not looking to get sick. We're not looking, you know, to get hurt, to get injured. But there is a way that I have seen in the last 15 years in particular, where the Pentecostalism that I fell in love with invited people to repentance, which was repentance, metanoia is a new way of seeing things. And constant pursuits of euphoric experiences without the call to repentance is only going to keep people in their constant confirmation feedback bias loops. Yeah. And without that disruption, without going, you know what? I love boring Sundays now, faithful Sundays. I love those Sundays. I really do. I don't need the euphoria every time because my life isn't lived in constant euphoria. So I need to figure out how to discern God's voice and to follow his way in the mundane. When my wife and I aren't getting along, when I need to figure out what is it about my mode of being in the world right now that needs to change because I'm experiencing this disruption and what I maybe believed... That's not the case. I, I'm passionate about the stuff we're talking about, Adam, because I lived in it, and I had to—I had to have my way of thinking disrupted. We all do. We I all do. Need so. I think a lot of the charismatic movement moving away from repentance and calls to repentance were because a lot of those calls were rooted in just some sort of like a puritanical moral rigidness which was we're focusing on repentance for, you know, because you looked at porn or you were focusing on repentance because you, you know, you you did this individual immoral act. And to me, repentance is a joy because repentance is an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that there is more of God to be known to explore. And if I don't open myself up to that, there's the real possibility that even though I call myself a Christian, that I can still have so many areas of my mind that are in darkness. Well, so euphoria, I, 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 I love go for that. It.
0: But repentance. It's essential. I mean, it's Jesus' first message. Don't do away message. with it. No, it's Jesus' first message repent and believe the good news, you know? And I love that because. That applies even to me and you, even in this conversation, you know, like you and I feel like we, we have seen a few things or maybe are seeing a few things culturally, you know, things, things that bother us. And I would really hate for people to think, oh, Adam and Paul are sitting in their ivory towers, Mm. blasting conservative Christians as though, (laughs) as though we don't have deep needs and as, as if our own cultural worldviews haven't been hijacked by whacked Mm -hmm. practices, right? Like, I just want to say, I know that's the truth in my life, and I'm sure I'm blind. I'm sure I'm blind. And I feel now, after having so
1: much of God's transformative work, the Spirit's transformative work in my life happen, I go every day, God, show me that stuff, because I'm excited now about sanctification. Like, I'm excited because I've seen, God, man, you have delivered me. <laughs> you've delivered me from from stuff that was bringing death in the world and people around me and it's not like hey I'm better I'm not it's not the Pharisee pointing to the sinner over in the corner right at the temple and going thank God I'm not like that guy over there that's I, I hope nobody takes that away because what I'm saying is God i I'm so grateful for the things you've delivered me from and I see your goodness in it and I Bring, you know, uh, creating me a clean heart, oh God. I know I have got right standing, you know, so we're not, I'm not like, this isn't sort of like, we need to get baptized every week. You know, we don't need an altar call every week. Sometimes we need an altar call, but instead what I need to do is continue to follow Jesus on the narrow way. And like, like a sheep that starts getting off course, I want to embrace the shepherd's rod and staff in my life. And, uh, you know, if in two years from now, I'm like, we have another conversation, and I'm like, Adam, when I was talking to you about that stuff, dude, let me tell you about some of the things that I was believing that was
0: true yeah. about the story that I, I w- missed out, and I w- I need to repent. I would imagine that's a, it, always a possibility for us. Yeah. Well, Paul, I don't think you're going to say it any better than that. Thanks mm. for coming on the pod. Thanks for sharing yeah. these things, because this is... This is important conversation for this moment that we're living in. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you're leading these sorts of conversations, Adam. And I
1: hope people—the biggest thing is I hope people see maybe the hardest thing that happens when we do get confronted with maybe an idol that we have in our lives is that thing we've got a sense of—that thing was giving us life, and it's, it's really hard. And there's a lot—I think for a lot of people, it's really hard because maybe repenting— puts them at odds with other people they've been in community with. And there's a lot of people having really hard conversations over the past couple of weeks with family members. And these are tough, but we want to like embrace that tension. It's good. You know, and just, we remain open and humble and teachable and loving and go, what can I learn from you? Are you open to learning something from me? And in that dialogue that we do together there's just the joy of transformation at the end. So I just would leave people with that encouragement. Look at
0: the joy set before you. <laughs> That's right. Amen. Well, thank you again for coming on. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to hear more like it, check out Paul's podcast, Deep Talks, everywhere you listen to podcast. All right, everybody. Peace.